Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. Uh, my name is Dom Fay, and uh, joining me today are my two uh, co-hosts, Peter Cat, joining me with another creative Zoom background. It's been a while, Peter, since I've seen one of your fun Zoom backgrounds. Talk us through this one. Uh, yes, it's good to be with you, Dom. Um, this one is another one of the gaping void ones, and it reminds us that our identity uh, is made up of a number of different bits, and we actually give hierarchical structure to it. So just getting us thinking about our identity and the roles we play and how we understand ourselves. Yeah, brilliant. The creativity of your Zoom backgrounds, I've said it before, but one of the great joys of uh, of the last few years for me. Um, and Sue Grimmett joining uh, with a different background as well for you, Sue. You're in an unusual place at the moment. Yeah, I'm up at Yudlow. I'm, I was up here on a cello retreat, so I'm in an Airbnb. And um, having been playing cello all day in a very different mind space, so it's really great to be with you all in conversation. Well, we are uh, so excited to welcome today's guest, somebody whose work the three of us have loved um, for a number of years, and, and I'm sure many of our listeners have as well. Stephen Shakespeare is a philosopher, writer, and priest. He's also Professor of Continental Philosophy of Religion at Liverpool Hope University. His latest book, Come Holy Gift, a book of poetry for the Christian year, did come out last year. You might know him from many, many other pieces around the place as well. Stephen, thank you so much for, uh, for making time for us. It's a real pleasure. Nice to be here. Now, there's so much we want to talk about uh, in this conversation, explicitly, I suppose, touching on the ideas of um, words, poetry, liturgy, and how it is that mm. we find ways to to speak, to articulate uh, about mm. this mystery that we're all swimming through that help rather than hold us back. Um, I, I, I want to start, though, with the question that I think everybody I've told or spoken to about your work asks me, which is, is he any relation... <laughs> to the famous Shakespeare. <laughs> I feel like when you're a writer and your last name's Shakespeare and you're from the UK, you've got to start with that question. Is there any connection? You've got to start with it. I, I think I'm the reincarnation. What can I say? Um, <laughs> I, who knows? Who knows? I think it's actually quite difficult to find, uh, you know, tracing your ancestry back. I've never done it properly, but tracing it back that far when the records were all over the place is quite hard. There were a few more Shakespeare's around in the Midlands of the uk which is where i grew up than there are say where i live now in liverpool um so i, I guess that the, there was more of a clan around there and perhaps there's not that many of us so we are a bit interconnected but i can't really give you any hard evidence i'm afraid surely you could claim a couple of dollars of royalties it'd be nice i think it's probably all out of copyright sadly <laughs> yeah that's probably a good point uh well we we do want to talk about i mean your work spans a, a probably a few different genres you've got uh, a very academic side to your work um, but today we're, we're hoping to focus more on the poetry and the, the liturgy that you write, um, which is just so stunning. And and I'm curious, uh, as we begin, if, if you maybe remember when and how uh, you became aware that working with the, the way we speak of the sacred was in some way what you were put here to do. Um, I think it's a good question. I, probably more when I worked in university chaplaincy, um, which I started in Sheffield alongside a parish job. Um, and then I came to Liverpool, probably getting on for 20 years ago now, uh, also in a university chaplaincy. And I suppose you have a bit more uh, freedom. You're, you're celebrating occasions where there isn't necessarily a set format. Uh, it was quite an ecumenical setup as well. So I, I think there was a sort of uh, maybe more of a practical necessity there. Um, but also, I think through my kind of priestly formation, sacramental worship had always 
really been important to me and there's the sort of richness of color and light and movement um and i felt a that should be reflected in our words and and could often be in traditional liturgies but why weren't we also drawing on um our contemporary questions and mm. concerns and the things that you know really bothered us now but also the the new language which we can find to reach out to touch on this mystery which is you know always fresh always new always needs to uh, or we need to seek new expressions for it um and also because it was a time when uh in the wake of a lot of thinking about inclusive language in 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 worship and it's it it seemed kind of obvious to me that oh, we should be there but we seem to be struggling about it um and rather than just trying to do that as a tick box exercise um I know a lot of people, and I was influenced by this, were thinking, well, why don't we use this as a creative opportunity? You know, this is a chance to not just change the pronouns, important though that is, but to rethink how we're structuring our prayer uh, and the kind of language we have that, that can create a kind of room for, for us to experience the mystery. So, yeah, I suppose there were a number of kind of things going into that personally and also in the wider context of of how liturgy felt like it needed to be changing and responding to the to these questions we were asking probably leads us into um many many tangents here but the one i want to pick up first is uh the idea of liturgy itself and why it is that humans have found liturgy um something compelling for for so long for so much of our time here um i know many obviously current or, or more uh, contemporary versions of of christian worship probably don't seem to focus too much explicitly on liturgy um so i'm I'm curious from your understanding what is it about liturgy do you think that that has um resonated with the the human experience for so long and why do you think it is such an, an important thing well i think we are symbolic animals and ritual animals and storytelling animals and i think all of that is is held within liturgy which gives um a structure to our, our movement through sacred space and sacred experience um, and a movement through the world. And I actually think liturgies, in a sense, are implicit in so much of our life, even when there isn't a liturgy. You know, if you're at a, an informal prayer meeting or whatever, it often follows a structure or a script um, yes. that, that there's certain expectations about, the, if you like, the language that we're playing here. And I think actually to name that, and to take seriously that we're not just beings who live in this isolated, you know, moment to moment existence, or we're not we're not just consumers, but that we're actually living stories. Um, I, I think it's something that is deep within the human psyche and the hum, human history. Uh, it, it's something that, you know, cultures across the world, ancient cultures can teach us about. Um, and I think it's sad if we lose it, because if we lose that liturgical sense it doesn't actually go away. It just gets replaced and um, uh, monopolized by other forms of liturgy, whether they're, you know, consumerist or just the, the society of the spectacle or whatever it might be. So I think actually being aware, sensitive of that liturgical heart of, of what it is to be human, I think, is, is really important. I had a conversation with someone from a Pentecostal church many years ago and they said to me, oh, the difference between our church and your church is that you've got a liturgy and we don't. 
And then I said, oh, I'm not sure about that. And I described to them what their average service would be in terms of, you know, start with something upbeat and then go down here and something in the middle as this sort of quiet opening up. And he said, how did you know that? And I said, because that's your liturgy. So I, we, we can't help but create liturgy. And I think, you know, Stephen's on the money is that we actually have to be aware of that. Otherwise, something happens that is a liturgy that may not actually be good for us. Uh, we yeah. can get locked into patterns that are locking us into a very uh, corrupt or toxic understanding. So being upfront about being liturgical, I think, is 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 actually the safest way to proceed because then you can actually look critically uh, or at least ask yourself questions. So, so why do we do that? Why do we why do we have a confession? Why do we put it where we do? Um, you know, and we've asked those sort of questions and you know, here we don't have a confession at all during the Easter season. Yeah, I mean, I, I think asking those questions is important, and also because, you know, the, one of the questions is is who who controls the liturgy, mm. who's shaping it, and who, whose agenda. And I'm not saying every time you go to a liturgy, you don't want to have all of these kind of um, <laughs> critical faculties turned on as though you're doing a kind of academic workshop on critical theory. But it has to shape our, our kind of when we're stepping back and reflecting on it, mm. so that when you go into liturgy, you can feel there's there is challenge you are also held and you are moved along but you're not just being manipulated um or putting put in a place in a hierarchy which is at somebody else's behest so you know that you to to feel safe and held and challenged and opened up and all the things we want liturgy to do we also need i think that capacity to, to think critically about liturgy I think that's a really um, interesting point you're making, Stephen, because why do we want to be clear, transparent, upfront about liturgy? It's because we don't want to be obscuring the power dynamic. And that's mm. the first thing you went for is, is is who's creating it, who's controlling it. Mm. Um, and it's just like power hierarchies in churches and how power is used. It's 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 yeah. about being transparent about where it is because there are always power dynamics and transparent and accountable about it and um it creeps its way into liturgy in our most sacred places too so yeah i think that's a really important point and of course as to, to, to pick up peter's point is there in in what might ostensibly be a non-liturgical setting especially if you've got something that is very driven by a charismatic pastor or whatever it might be you know so uh, naming those things, being conscious of those things, I think is is important for our for our spiritual well being and and for the challenge to be the right kind of challenge, uh, mm. not not the challenge of having to submit <laughs> to this very human hierarchy. Mm -hmm. I know, um, Sue, we've spoken on the podcast before that you just about have a loyalty card of all the denominations um, with oh. every every single denomination. <laughs> I, know. I, I, I try occasionally to to get people to forget that. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, this will all be edited out, I'm sure then. Um, but but I, I am curious, as someone who's moved through um, the, the different denominations at times and has seen, mm. I suppose, the, the clear structured and maybe less formal liturgies that they operate off, um, when, when people ask you about the, I guess, what is largely seen as a, a slightly more formal or structured liturgy um, that the Anglican Church has that, that you preside over on a, on a Sunday and at your services, when people say, maybe from other denominations or other traditions, what is it about this that has compelled you? What is your response to that normally? Well, one of the things that changes, but one of the things I say is that it holds us. And there is instructed, just like when you... Um, Creativity thrives best when you have some structure, some bounds, 
and some scaffolding around it and you can enter into the liturgy and it holds us and that's us together. So it's not what really exhausted me and why I guess I kept moving is that I was looking for something that was genuinely um, participatory and genuinely not about, you know, driven is the power dynamic again, that people gather together and together they do the work of the people. They do the work of liturgy. And um, it's something that's not possible if you have something driven entirely by the person up front with a microphone. And um, that sharing of the work that we gather to do, um, even, you know, it's re repetitive often, but not, not there are so many variations within that repetitive framework. Um, so it is still endlessly renewed, um, but it also means that we guide each other and travel together um, through the whole thing. So uh, they, they're, I guess, a couple of the, the key things, but I find um, there is space um, in which to express our longings um, and our pain and our joy in a way that I um, had been looking for for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I know, Stephen, something I have found wonderful about your work working in a, a high school context is that um, the, your words, uh, your liturgies that you've crafted, particularly from the Earth Cries Glory, um, the book of yours is one that I use um, commonly, uh, they're words that sort of bind us together in a common humanity. You don't have to have any theological belief to say many of these words. You don't, you know, we're not naming um, God in any clear way. We're not using a lot of that language a lot of the time. One of my favorite bits that we used um, with the students last year uh, as closing words often in our services was your words, soften our brittle walls of fear and exclusion, quiet the inner voices of blame and hurt. May we learn a new song, a song of creation led by the earth, a song of solidarity led by the poor. And I noticed in this that there were students in the hall who would identify as Christian, who were very comfortable saying these words, students who would very much identify not as being religious at all, and they were comfortable saying these words too. How important to you in your work is writing or articulating this mystery in a way that isn't exclusive to people who believe or label things in a certain way? Yeah, I think it's a good question because in some ways I would see myself in some ways as quite orthodox. <laughs> in the, in the, in the, you know, the root for me is the incarnation and, and, and mm. that's the centre of things and that's the perspective from which I see and understand God and understand God's relationship to the world. But I think because of that, because it's about God's solidarity with the world, with the flesh, and that word that which is made flesh is expressed in all of nature as well, that it isn't something obviously that one particular group or tradition holds on to exclusively. Um, that we're always bearing witness to an ocean that is stretching out, you know, way beyond us. Uh and I think in that the book you you were mentioning, um, you know, part of my interest over the years has been in in nature, nature spirituality, nature mysticism, and I've been really interested in um, reading about and thinking with some of the people who are interested in like more neo pagan um, forms of spirituality, which you know I think for some Christians it feels toxic and it's all about the occult and so on. But of course, when you get to know it, it's not really about that. Um, this is about people trying to find uh, a new language, you know, mm -hmm. because often these traditions are inspired by the past, but have had to be reinvented. Mm -hmm. But trying to find a new language to tap into those deep currents of our connection with with the earth um, and with the spirit of, of nature. Um, 
now i think christianity is taking that on board and that you know you can find all sorts of people in christianity and christian theology and spirituality who are really thinking about that deeply and, and putting it into practice but it's also been inspired by things that have come from beyond our boundaries and so many of the liberation struggles and so on that, that we're engaged in in the church often people in the world are ahead of us um and we're learning from them and it seems to me that that's that's healthy that's what it should be you know if my faith is in the incarnation then it centers on a mystery that my uh, grasp of the world my reason can't comprehend can't capture and what's true for me as an individual i think is true for us as institutions as well um i i don't want to knock institutions they're necessary they're broken then but they're necessary um but they don't hold everything um and there is always that that more than that um we need to encounter so as i say to, to me you know i think there's a richness for me in in certain core things in in christian faith that i wouldn't want to let go of but i think by their nature those things are open and inclusive so to me inclusion or dialogue or connecting with people with different spiritual traditions and expressions isn't a sort of add-on extra to the core of christian faith it's like oh i've got my christianity but i better talk to these other people as well i i think they're um intimately connected it's kind of at the heart of that revelation i think that it's a revelation of a mystery which exceeds us mm -hmm. It's interesting. It probably leads us into what is a conversation in many aspects of, of not just the church, but culture at large, which is um, what some call the problem of the word God these days, that um, people are often meaning very different things when they use it. it. It You know, any attempt to name the unnameable obviously is going to, to run into problems over time. And um, it, I, I think it's probably fair to say that the word God alongside some of the other um, key words that we do use in the tradition often have for many become at times more of an obstacle um, to experiencing this reality rather than uh, than helping um, that experience. How do you, when you're writing your liturgies and your prayers, how do you come at the, I guess, the naming of the divine and, and the maybe the, the difficulties around the word God itself? Yeah, was it, is that passage by Martin Buber where he talks about the word God and it's something like, yeah, this terrible word that we've got left with has been hopeless and abused and so on but it's what else have we got sort of <laughs> in a way you can't you can't avoid it um but on the other hand yes because people bring all sorts of associations uh with it which is actually unhelpful and it's interesting teaching teaching philosophy of religion you know the students i'm teaching um not exclusively but mostly they're sort of 18 19 year olds and so on um, most of them haven't come from a, a particularly practicing religious background. Mm. Um, and I found over the years that it's best if you teach do philosophy of religion, not to start with arguments for the existence of God or something. What we do now is start with mysticism and negative theology. And, and what are we what are we talking about anyway? The sort of strangeness of this idea, because otherwise I think people come with this idea. Mm. It's a very stereotypical idea of um you know a masculine deity sitting on the clouds they may not you know if they thought about it they wouldn't think actually yes there's a big bloke sitting on the clouds but in a sense they still carry that idea around with them as yeah. this sort of uh, you know cosmic boss who's who's clicks his fingers and things happen and you know so it's just it becomes a barrier yes mm -hmm. so 
Okay, so what do we do? I think one of the things is, you know, drinking from our own wells and, and reaching back into scripture and tradition to see the the richness, the verdancy of the language that's used there for the divine. Um, and there's obviously things we might find more problematic, things we might find speak to us, but that's fine. You know, scripture is such a, you know, an abundance of variety. So there's all sorts of um, intimations and, and imagery and metaphor that that is richly part of our scripture but also part of our, our tradition uh, as we go forward and you know i've recently come across people like uh, much more hildegard of bingen who talks wow. about this idea of the greenness of god the veridity and and you know she's steeped in the tradition but she's mm -hmm. speaking with her own voice with a with a freshness about that mystery so for me that i think that's what it that's that's kind of what it's about it's not that we sort of have to jettison everything and start from scratch um because that tradition has has uh, all sorts of dimensions which um, still feed us mm. and neglected di dimensions that we can bring to the fore and then that can inform you know perhaps new imagery uh you know we draw from our own experience as well um, so again i think that that sort of permission to to be creative with our language about god isn't something we just bring from somewhere else it's 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 running through our tradition and, and we should rejoice in that i think and mm -hmm. so yeah i mean there's no easy way around this because there's no easy way to name god so mm -hmm. i <laughs> i think words which allow us to touch on um and and have a bodily sense of that mystery that otherness um to me are what are what bring it alive and using as many words as we can, I think, um, one of the problems with the word God is that because it does carry particular imagery, if we only use the word God, then those images pass from being metaphors to concrete, um, sure. which is the problem we have with using the word he for God all the time. We sort of concretize God into sort of having a Y chromosome and sort of genitals. Um, that it, but if we keep on using words that are non-human, talk about God as a rock and an eagle and as as being green itself, I mean, the idea of God being green that Hildegard um, picks up means that we just keep it all dancing around rather than falling into some sort of concrete mould. Mm. The, more, the more words, the better. And I just love the way that uh, poets and and mystics keep coming up with different images because their experience invites the use of yet another word. I, I love that because I always say, you know, words will always fail us, you know, but as usual with many things, it's paradoxical because there are also um, so much abundance in words. We may not feel we can, you know, you can't actually completely encompass the divine in your words, but gosh, we had a, have a lot of wonderful words and words <laughs> that can be drawn from all sorts of spaces and contexts and cultures yeah. and histories. And, you know, I, I think that is so important that we don't think ever that we've got one word for God and that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, because yeah. there is I, think that's a, I, I think that's a really important point because it's tempting always to say language is inadequate mm. which is true but i'm not ready to give up on language because it's okay. so much more than something which just describes or defines mm. language is expressive it's bodily it's rhythmic it's it's yeah it's poetic and if you translate poetry into prose you lose that yeah. so language can can do and be so much more than just a set of 
labels we apply to the world or definitions we apply to yeah. the world. And we need the, we need words to be able to tell our stories, which is how we basically uh, define ourselves and create our meaning. Yeah. yeah. And I know I'm I'm fascinated, Stephen, by the way you draw. Um, I mean, I've just got this little note written in my book. Here. It says poetry is a remembrance of prayer, which is um, from your latest book. And I, I think when you poetry has this capacity to open us up in ways that prose can't. Mm. And you use in we use in our church, St Andrews, we um, have prayers for an inclusive church there every single day for morning prayer. Um, we use the the collect from the prayer book for Australia, but we also use the prayer from the and it's and it just shows the um, power and the importance of continuing to regenerate our language and to find new words because it, it actually so often amongst those gathered who we have a, a really mixed group um, from different backgrounds in morning prayer and so often it's that prayer from your book that opens us up in different ways. You can see it connects. Um, with all of our mixed experiences. So somehow words may fail us, but gosh, they can also connect when they are paired with imagery that can take us to places beyond what I think prose can manage. That's where I think the, the poetry yeah. in your prayers is really important. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. And, and and I think for me, we kind of, kind of going back to that idea where for me it's kind of rooted in this idea of the word made flesh. So we say that and then i think it's worth thinking about what the word is then um and it's it is the expression of god's heart in in gift in love in flesh uh in nature you know you think of colossians everything's made through him for him in him all things hold together in the word all things hold together the word is doing all of that and our words are sort of i think always emerging out of and trying to respond to that that deeper word which is god's word mm -hmm. um, and it's so i again language is gets, gets hijacked doesn't it when you talk about god's word people talk about god's word i instantly start thinking of kind of bible preachers on youtube tell, yeah using it as a weapon it's like oh mm -hmm. um, and it's 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 nice it's kind of it's this well it's yeah yeah i mean and we're revisiting john's gospel this sunday too you know and i was just reflecting on this out because it's actually that the word using um you know the the terminology of of the word um mm. as the conduit between yeah. um god and creation like it, it's it's the it's the means through which creation happens you know the 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 word in flesh but the word in flesh in creation as well and i yeah. think it's such, a, it's such a beautiful image that gets us away we need to keep looking back at that prologue in john's gospel to remind ourselves of, yeah. of um such a, an expansive understanding of what we mean by word mm. yeah absolutely yeah yeah that the god is expressive and and creation is poetry you know mm -hmm. <laughs> not in a kind of naive it's all lovely and fluffy because it's not creation is not like that and neither is neither mm. is good poetry hopefully yeah, you know, it's also yeah. got the kind of hard parts and the violence and and, and so mm -hmm. on but it it can't be reduced down to a shopping list of definitions mm. um and you know i think perhaps because of the power of scientific language and the scientific method which itself became too dominant as there's nothing wrong with it in itself but it becomes too dominant if that's the only model of language we have various strands of the church trying to echo that by saying oh yeah we need to pin everything down um and see ourselves as almost like a, a parallel type of science it, it's mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. i think a travesty of what that 
what that word is really what it's about um, mm -hmm. you know it's interesting Stephen. i'm I, i'm mindful at the moment of uh john philip newell's work on on this this idea that uh we're not here to take god anywhere and give god to people who do not have god because i think that's that's a lot of the tradition uh, or the expression of the tradition around the world is this idea that we have something called god uh, a lot of people do not have it, and our job is to go and take God to them and hand them this thing called God. And I know one of his his ideas that he explores really beautifully is that our task instead is to awaken each other to where this reality that we have named God is at play already in our lives. Um, and it, it interests me because it's something I say to my students a lot that humanity didn't begin as far as we know it didn't begin with you know a few characters coming down from the clouds one of them saying okay i'm god i want you to tell everybody else my name's god and here's what i'm like but instead that's just a word that we came up with along the journey to name a reality that we were observing at play or name reality mm. itself that we were observing as being at play but it is interesting that these words that originally were just attempts, um, and they were just attempts at naming this divine mystery at this reality, have now for so many become the key roadblocks. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, what do we do when our words start getting in the way of people encountering reality in its deepest form rather than, than helping to facilitate it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's an easy answer to this. Uh we we're, we're going to be wrestling with those texts those those words ourselves we're not we can't just jettison them but i suppose um you know like like a number of people have said in this conversation already you can a break open new ways of understanding those existing words and and start to see them in their richness in their context how they come out of people's lives and experience how they're touching on a mystery that's dynamic and relational that's not just a fixed thing um, and notice those those experiences in people's lives. So I think it is connecting with with how people are experiencing lives, how they're puzzling about it, how they're finding joy in it, how they're finding challenge and and pain in it as well. Um, then it starts to be rooted. And I, I think at the same time, I think as Sue was saying earlier, you know, we do need to be um, thinking of new metaphors and new ways of speaking uh, because. That's what people have always done. You know, they oh. found new angles on whether it's a, something from scripture or something from our contemporary experience. So, yeah, building those connections to, to make oh. us notice things. I think, in a way, poetry, in some ways, is a very individual voice often, you know, with the poet's work, speaking in an, an, an idiom that is unique to them. But where it speaks to people is where it, it lights up, I suppose, areas of experience mm -hmm. that haven't been lit up in quite that way before, and you can enter into it. Um, and mm -hmm. you, you perhaps can't even put that quite mm -hmm. into your own words because the the words of the you know the great poems hold us a bit like liturgy. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, they're not you know contemporary culture, you know, poetry and so on. May, maybe not a mainstream so mm. much but there's there's plenty of, of culture and art and music that is connecting with people's lives mm. yeah. so i think there is there are still opportunities there to notice what's going on and you know how you, you can find in in you know, contemporary music for example all sorts of spiritual uh points of connection mm. uh, people longing for some kind of meaning some kind of connection mm. some kind of sense of the the mm. mystery of life so yeah i 
there's no easy, I think, answer that I can give, and I'm sure it's something we're all, we're all puzzling about in our own contexts. Mm -hmm. But part of it is is being aware of exactly that issue, Dom, and 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 how we can think creatively about the words um, we have, how we can um, embody them and enact them in fresh ways, and how we can listen to the culture around us as well. Mm. I think the more, the more words we use, the more likely we are to tap into people's experience. Um, I've had a couple of conversations with people lately who um, have been sort of struggling to work out where God fits. And on two occasions, I just happened to say to them, have you ever had sort of a feeling like a warmth in your chest when something's, when you've sort of been feeling really connected? And they said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, what if that was God? actually touching your life and it opened this amazing two amazing conversations as people thought oh like oh okay if that's sort of how god appears to me then and off they went so it was you know i just absolutely i just hit on the right sort of image yeah. for them knowing full yeah. well that i could have easily just <laughs> missed the mark yeah. by, by yeah. um, and i and, and i and the reason I shared, I asked them about that was that I was remembering an experience of my own where it was like yeah. a warmth in my chest. And so mm. it was sort of an embodied, incarnated, yeah. um, and, you know, a warmth in my chest. What does that mean anyway? So, again, it's a metaphor, and but it spoke to them and there would be other yeah. people for whom it won't and, you know. Yeah. We just have to keep on flying as many, keep as many of these balls in the air at the same time so that people can see that it is a complex and rich experience. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that's right. The richness of it is really important. And, you know, one of, obviously one of the things that preoccupies us at the moment is the environmental crises that we're facing. Mm. Um, and the flip side of that might be that people are learning to look at, uh, embeddedness in nature in a new way mm. you know, i think it's always been people who said oh yeah i don't want to go i don't go to church i'll go out and have a walk uh in the if you're near hills or in the forest or you go to the park or whatever and that's where i that's where i do my religion if you like yeah. um and you know I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to that i yeah me I, too mm. I want there to be for me a focus and a liturgy and something that's named yeah but it's not at the exclusion of that because that is important Mm. people paying attention and feeling part of that that hold of, of nature and finding something sacred in it yeah and i think that's probably a, quite a significant experience now i think that paying attention theme which i mean we've touched on in the podcast before but is also critical um i think in poetry and in good well in some liturgical prayers that we might you borrow from someone else something that someone else has written that manages mm -hmm. to cut through to open it's because there is a quality of attention that we have and that the writer of that poem has that mm -hmm. it's somehow in that we bring together i mean you have to sometimes attend don't you when the metaphors um, we have words that don't normally fit together in prose but somehow they go together suddenly in a poem Absolutely. And our attending to that is like that space between the words. What's going on in that, yeah. in the tension of that image or the colour of that image or the, you know, so I think the attention is another one of these key points yeah. um, yes. that when we're looking at liturgy, um, it's it's the attention of the creator and all those participating as well. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I reading something by uh, Iris Murdoch recently about about this, and because she writes about that capacity for attention, mm. where in a way it's a spiritual act in itself because you're not allowing the although it's you attending, you're not allowing that kind of little ego sitting mm. inside you with all its fears and and plans and mm. projects and attempts to control everything to be the center of attention. Yes, um, yes. And she talks about seeing the, the this. I think it's a kite, you know, the bird of prey, um, in the sky, and and that sense of there being that's that's what there is. There is that in the sky, and there's you're absorbed in that mm -hmm. uh, in a way, but still present to it. You know, mm -hmm. you're not casting out. So it's a kind of a I, I feel a sort of mystical experience in that sense. It's not mm -hmm. a, a cancelling of the self, but it may be a, an overcoming of that little ego. And I think there are times when we we have that experience they're all too fleeting because yeah. we're too busy yeah. we're moving on to the next thing right yeah, <laughs> um, right. if mm. we can cultivate that attention i think that's such a a gift um and that not allowing our lives to be driven by the, the struggling and reactive and mm. resentful ego which yeah. you know is a survival mechanism but we don't just want to survive <laughs> we want to live um, and we are not our thoughts too is 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 a simple thing but yet how how yeah. easy it is to keep on identifying with our thoughts and that's yeah. you know again when we're when um sometimes i know i need words to take me by surprise because i'm pretty mm. good at, at maintaining a flow of ego-centered um narrative in my own head you know like i'm always telling myself some story or other um and so if if i i come across a line in a prayer or a poem that that kind of startles me it it interrupts the flow of my own narrative quite beautifully yeah. you know and so you know that that is again um god catches us by surprise i think sometimes in um the way we can use metaphors to express ideas that um cut to the heart of our of our longings yeah 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 yeah, that's beautiful. yeah. So I think that the, the, that interruption is is quite important as well because, yeah. in a way, you know, we think of whether it's meditation or con contemplation or something as a an experience of serenity. Um, well, maybe that might be part of it. But if you've done sort of meditation and contemplation, mm. you no, know, it's difficult actually yeah. because, like you know, like you're saying, you've got these stories, you've got these sentences running through your head all the time. And they're they're mm. kind of getting in the way of of just being there, yeah. um, and and to be interrupted sometimes, mm. it, you know, you, you can't always do it yourself. You, no, no, you can't. So, this is where we. Yeah. Need, I think that's a really important point, Stephen, because I we often go down the self help road mm. in our spirituality as well, and I think it's so important to recognise we need um, we need other people in every dimension, including the words of others. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's interesting, Stephen, we, we mentioned earlier in the conversation um, the idea that there is certainly less and less, at least, obvious uh, explicit liturgy in society today and the way we live. Um, you look, mm. you know, maybe 100 years ago, politically, on an education front, pretty much everywhere there were more formal traditions and rituals and liturgies that we would live by, whereas today, um, while they might exist, they kind of are unspoken and maybe even... Um, unconscious altogether uh, in in many aspects. 
What do you think, as a culture that is still trying to find its way forward and, you know, is moving more and more away from the traditional religions as we keep on hearing, how how are we going to recapture, do you think, some sense of tradition, of ritual, of liturgy? And why do you think it's so important that, that we do? Well, I do think it's important we do. I think partly for the reasons we were talking about, you know, liturgy happens like it or not. So let's have good liturgy. Uh, let's have life-giving liturgy. Um I mean, how do we do it? Again, this is a sort of million-dollar question that is is hard in a cultural setting. But um, there's no – I don't think it's just about having a great liturgy (laughs) because Mm. any church or or community of worship, there's going to be so much more that's going on in terms of their presence in their community and the relationships they build um, and and how – you know, if they have a building, how that's seen and how people can come in and use it. So I think having those – Having those wider networks and connections is going to be important for any sort of, say, parish parish ministry. Um, you know, you can put on the most great liturgy ever, but it's, you know, it's not like inviting people to a show, is it? <laughs> Look at what we're putting on. It's amazing. Um, obviously, where people come through the door and are sort of invited in and, and, and experience it, then um, I think we can't get away from the fact that it takes time to get used to liturgy. Like if, if I can put it like that. So I think people need to feel safe. Um, that there, there's a structure to it, that they're held, that they're welcomed in the first place, um, but not necessarily pestered. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of purposefulness and beauty and, um, a richness but a simplicity about what's done in liturgy. I think if it's confusing, um, that's not always a bad thing. But if it's just if it feels like an esoteric ritual, then it's not necessarily going to speak to people. But it does take time, I think, to get used to what a liturgy is, to get kind of into the flow of it. Um, and I think that's no bad thing because, in a way, you know, liturgy is going to be strange to people and part of its power can be its strangeness it takes us to somewhere else you know we don't we don't leave the same place as we did when we entered the door um and i also don't think that every bit of the liturgy should be explained to people because um mm. i wrote something about this recently and I, uh, one of the things that has wound me up in both more conservative and more liberal settings is when the people leading the worship feel the need to explain what we're doing all the time or say, this is what we're doing now, and now we're doing it, and now we've done it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I just feel this, it's like... You're pushing my buttons to heaven. <laughs> it's like translating poetry into prose, you know. It's like... <laughs> we've got to explain... Everything's cerebral then. It's like, this is... Uh, yeah. oh. And because like we're doing one thing after another. And so, it's reductionist as well. Yeah, It's functionalist. So... Trusted the flow of the liturgy to to hold that mystery. That it doesn't all have to be explained, but there are still opportunities within that to draw people in. You know, obviously make it participatory. If people are, where people are comfortable with that, um, have movement and and you know draw. But so, but so mm. I think it's kind of trusting in in liturgy rather than having to apologise for it. Partly. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think that's actually a great thing about human life that we're liturgical. Mm. 
you know, the, the problem is that that culturally that what the, the mind you were talking about that explains everything that's that that to the nth degree we know exactly where we're going next what's going to happen why it's going to happen that's the strategizing mind which is culturally dominant isn't it you know and and it it, mm. it labels it categorizes it orders plans sets goals all those things are useful you know but it's it's like that's such a dominant mindset so understanding liturgy when it is taking us into a totally different space like that it's no wonder people find it unfamiliar um and i think because people find it unfamiliar what we're trying to do is make it more familiar for them but we end up just morphing into the same um sort yeah. of and, yeah and, and that, that's the center of our ego really isn't it that that strategizing mind it's that okay. same I am my thoughts thing um and it, it, we're actually then you know, taking away the very gift that it is in trying to yeah. make it more familiar yeah yeah no I think that's right so that's why it's such a uh a difficult it's a difficult problem but it's a good problem to have because we don't want to throw it out and just sort of you know as, as you're saying reduce it to something that is familiar because what's the point you know mm. what's the point of just doing the same thing if we're just doing the same thing as you're doing anywhere else there is no point so let, let's retain that sense of being held in a in a story in a mystery mm -hmm. um and there are way i think there are ways of doing that um in different traditions you know i'm, I'm kind of more familiar with an anglo-catholic tradition mm -hmm. and i know that that can be done in an extremely prissy and alienating way and it can be done in a rich beautiful and inclusive way mm -hmm. um so it's not as though the answer is this sort of liturgy but right. uh, how we do it how people are welcomed mm -hmm. uh how people are made to feel that they you know they belong there that's mm. that's more important than whether they get everything that happens mm. i think uh, because none of us get everything that's happening no. anyway thank goodness thank goodness thank yeah. goodness yeah. <laughs> that'd be terrible yeah wouldn't it it'd be a lot less interesting that much is for sure well, um, the, thing, thing, it, the thing i enjoy the thing i really enjoy about liturgy is the fact that even though you know i've been a priest for 33 years and for most of that time we've had the one prayer book the second mm. modification and i am still taken by surprise mm. yeah um, but the same words same words and some but sometimes those words just take me by surprise Mm -hmm. in yeah. ways that I think yeah. wow how have I not seen that before and followed yeah. by I'm grateful I haven't seen that before yeah. today I've seen it and today I can really appreciate it and I'm going to take that away with me um, you know and one of the only frustrations I have occasionally in liturgy is that I get to that point and think I need to think about this and the liturgy says no mate yes peter the bread is glowing but put it down <laughs> <laughs> well there's definitely space for silence in liturgy, yeah absolutely right? yeah. but yeah. i think what you're saying is important and it's go back to the idea we, we were talking about before about the balance you need you need fresh insight and language we also need to be able to um see the unseen dimensions in something incredibly familiar yeah, yeah. you can be saying the lord's prayer for the nine millionth time and suddenly something will mm -hmm. like you something will grab yeah. hold of you and it's not just always about us inventing you know i can it's all right for me saying this because i you know i've invented some prayers <laughs> i've written some prayers 
And obviously you can use those, throw them away, whatever. But it's also important to be with the prayers that we've had for, for years and years and to find those, those, those different dimensions and to be surprised by what's there. Mm. Um, and there's, you know, I was reading um, George Steiner's book, uh, Real Presences, which is, is getting on a bit now, but it's, it's a fantastic sort of manifesto about the richness of language and how uh, any word or sentence, there's this whole teeming life and history and illusions uh, and sensations reverberating in it. And it can't just be pinned down to, to one meaning. And I think that's so true mm. in, in our liturgy as well. It's it's not just about inventing stuff because that could just be another ego thing, couldn't it? You know, that's right. the creative worship is all about making it up from scratch every time. Yeah. You know, so I'd get up and say, well, here's some more prayers that I've written. Let's all say these prayers yes. that I've written. Like, well, yeah, and if we, we, we fall for that, then we'll lose the sacred of, of everyday life because everyday, yeah. life, everyday life is very ordinary but extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And to think, to think that we want something more spectacular than the sunrise just because we've seen 365 of them this year. And some of our culture is driving us that way of, gee, yeah. you know, it's only, it's only the sun coming up. Whereas with the eyes to see, you can stand there enthralled every morning. That's right. Well, it's why I'm partly a bit suspicious of novelty just for it as a value in itself. Because, of course, our, our capitalism is about novelty mm, to stimulate absolutely. artificial desires and demands to keep the, yep. you know, the, the right. machinery yeah. things moving. Um, and... And there are all sorts of values which we think, are, you know, which, which do have a good side, like novelty, newness, uh, flexibility is another one. But they they are quite easily co-opted into that mentality that we are at the service of this great machine of generating uh, temporary experiences or objects mm. to consume that we then move on to the next one. Mm. Uh, and sometimes just staying with what we've seen a million times before, or what we've heard, or what we've said a million times before. Um, is really valuable because mm. it's noticing mm. and attention. It's a really interesting point, Stephen. I know something that Sue has done at her church for a number of years is a New Year's Eve service, which is something a little bit more informal, I suppose, than than a normal, um, obviously, Eucharistic service. And Sue, mm. you, you use different poems in there, different readings, different pieces of music. And after the mm. first one of these that I went to, I remember talking to you afterwards and saying, that was so wonderful, um, do you think there's any space for a service like that, that, you know, every week could be uh, bringing in new poems and new readings and new insights? And your response to me was that um, if it did that, if you sort of make it the the ever-evolving this week's poems, this week's readings, this week's opening words and closing words, that you actually lose something that way. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think there is some, um, you know, some power in observing rites and seasons and bringing in different things at different times. But the, um, I think what Peter's saying about the everyday, there's actually, if we start looking at our days, we've got a heck of a lot of repetition in all of our days and the way we get up and clean our teeth and the mm-hmm. little rituals that we all create, you know, and there is um, 
in these these holding rhythms and patterns there's space where we recognize things again it's that interruption thing isn't it like new year's eve for me is an interruption that um can can help us to see i hope in a new way when we get some people's beautiful words and we bring that cultural um movement towards newness and looking with hope for the future and all of that that's in our culture anyway it's teaming in, in and some of some of that amazing poetry that that is a, around that we can team in our prayers can interrupt the way we might see things and see the world but that's because it's at that moment at that time interrupting mm. our daily routine mm. yeah yeah it's interesting Stephen. i i through this whole conversation i've i've kept thinking i wasn't sure if i was going to mention it but i won't because it, it's about a friend of mine but i won't mention his name i just i remember having a friend uh i've had a friend for a number of years and i remember he always used to he's quite staunchly um non-religious and uh very literal thinker very rational thinker and would often disagree with me um, when we had conversations and I'd you'd talk about the mystery of things and awe and wonder. And he would say, it's all very explainable and there's no point trying to, you know, have these bigger conversations. And then a couple of years ago uh, on the anniversary, um, on, on an anniversary with his partner, he put up an Instagram post of the two of them in which he described her as the light of his life. And I, I read that line and I laughed a little bit to myself because clearly he, despite what he would say rationally, had some understanding that there are times in life where we need to speak of something that is beyond us, beyond language. And he didn't genuinely, I mean, I, I doubt this woman is walking around holding a torch everywhere he goes with her. <laughs> I doubt she's genuinely lighting up his life. Maybe she is, but but there is there is this innate human, even in our hyper-rational, literal context, there is this innate mm. human need to reach for, for language that can in some way access the de deeper, bigger um, experiences mm. we're having. Even if we don't label them as overtly religious in large parts of our culture today, that need still seems to be as there, there as much as ever, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think it is. And it, it's not as though people have, are not people anymore and, and not kind of still carrying that image of God around <laughs> within them from, from, you know, using our language. Um, and, and clearly people are still loving, grieving, um, and struggling with what they're going to do in life. And, you know, one of the privileges for me is uh, for a lot of my time teaching people who are sort of 18, 21 years old and heavily shaped by their culture, which, you know, for me is an increasingly um, sad old man. I, you know, I don't pretend to understand contemporary pop culture or anything like that, but uh, they're clearly shaped heavily by it, um, by the technology they're using all the time. And yet, it's interesting to see them grow and develop over the years. They're with us, the questions they're asking, the struggles they have. Uh, I think the, ve the very fact that a lot of our increasing numbers of students and young people struggle with mental health issues um, is, in a, in a way, an indication that these existential questions about who I am and where I fit and what's this all about are deeply important to them. Um, mm. And clearly they're not really always being fed by what they're receiving and hearing and and being around um and by the way in which we organize life now which is you know deeply competitive and uh, and anxious in itself so but i think you know it, it's a horrible thing to see people struggling in these ways um and we you know we all go through these times as well but it, it's also i think evidence that that human quest yes. for meaning is still very much alive
I, I think is and talking about questioning uh, the, the questions that matter. Um, is it John O'Donoghue who talks about asking the beautiful question? You know, and I, I think when we think about um, the way we've our culture can can teach us to phrase questions, um, they mm. may not be helping um, anyone, younger generations or anyone, to phrase it in terms of a more beautiful question for us. Mm. Um, and that's what um, again, you know, getting back to the power of, of words and poetry and prayer, and 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 prayer could be seen as a way of forming beautiful questions in us, couldn't it? You know, that yeah. you're reaching for it. And sometimes we can't quite articulate it but in our prayers it can help us to form what is the a beautiful question the next beautiful question our life should be addressing um mm. you know instead mm. of often they're quite quite small questions that i hear young people express um and they're often you know they can be tilted in in um this you know in quite despairing terms with good reason i know but I, there is still space to be forming the beautiful questions for all of our lives. Yeah. 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 I think that's a, a lovely way of thinking of what prayer, you know, liturgy can offer. It's a, it's a way of formulating our attention, of focusing our attention, but also formulating questions. And yes, it's you know, attention that, and intention, isn't yeah. it? That, you know, it is. So, yeah. I, I found, you know, pray the, the, age-old practice of praying with the psalms you know there's all sorts of things when you read the psalms and you pray with them which are challenging and difficult and you wouldn't put things in that way but there's there's such a richness there because they're expressions of struggle and lament and and all sorts of things all sorts of difficult emotions get expressed there um and you know it's, it's kind of funny in a way if, if we, if we didn't have the psalms and somebody wrote them now nobody would think of including them in a liturgy they think, well, what's this stuff you know, yeah. <laughs> but, you know yep. they mm. are actually shaping shaping our, mm. uh, our questions and struggles i think mm -hmm. mm -hmm. level. yeah no, that's beautiful well Stephen, your work has been so helpful for us for so many on this front um what is the best way for for people to stay up to date with what you're doing and and if they want to get a copy of the books and use um, your words in, in their liturgies. What's the best way to go about um, tracking you down online? Well, I've got a website, which is, um, if I can remember it, just stephenshakespeare.com. <laughs> <laughs> because nobody else had got that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I'm not always brilliant at updating it as regularly as I should, but there, there's some links to uh, things I've written, um, where you can get books, and and also I try and you know put some new poetry or bits that I've already published uh, up there or prayers which are relevant to the season. So um, you know if you can't get hold of prayers from inclusive church, there's sometimes some stuff on there as well. Um, so so that's one way. Obviously, you know you can. Well, I mean, I think if you go there, you can find titles of books and stuff that I've done. So if you're interested. Um, I think prayers for an inclusive church is probably not as easily available now. It's a while ago since that came out, and I, I don't know if Canterbury's uh, Press um, are, are doing another reprint. But it was available in a paperback format in in an American version as well, which I think is, is still available. 
Well, look, I suppose podcasts like our one here and, and many others across the world are trying to do this as well, trying to find the language, the words, the expression to um, speak of and explore this great mystery we're all swimming through. It is something you've been doing for many years, Stephen, and there's very few, I think, doing it quite as um, as beautifully uh, as, as your work does. So thank you so much for all you've done and thank you for, for joining us for the conversation today. Thank you. Real pleasure and, and, and more power to you in exploring this mystery as well.